you've been with us for the last 10 or so weeks, uh, you may have heard some topics discussed that uh, the first thought in your mind was, that doesn't really apply to me. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not struggling with that. I'm not, I'm not in that uh, position. I'm not in that place. All that means is that it's a piece of this world you're disconnected with because it really has to do with all of us. As believers, we are a part of this creation. It is not our eternal home, but it is the home that we have, and it is the home that we have to influence for the sake of Jesus Christ, to reach lost people, to bring them to the foot of the cross and to let the power of God's word and the love of his son change their life. And it feels like with each year that goes by that we are under more and more pressure that what's really inside of humanity is coming out and that this is an opportunity for God in the hearts of believers to take those leftover parts of our old life and address address them so more of the life and character of Jesus Christ has a place in us. And today what we're going to be talking about is being convicted what that conviction looks like, and how it plays out in a world that often doesn't look a lot like us. Specifically, as you see on the screen behind me, convicted in a culture that continues to compromise. To compromise our our beliefs, to compromise our faith, to compromise our standards, by which up until at this point at least we have attempted to live our lives by. We are living in a time of compromise, and I think we can see the impacts of this Uh, in a lot of different places. We've seen our politicians compromise. We've seen them flip-flop on positions to trace dollars down the campaign trail or votes. And it has done so much damage to our common, shared civic life as American people. We've seen churches compromise, either on their theology or on their core convictions. They've compromised to find favor in the power of those same political leaders We've seen men and women in sports, those people that, for many, they look at as their idols who've compromised and taken performance-enhancing drugs, breaking the rules for the sake of getting ahead. We've seen it in our homes. We've seen it in the workplace. And compromise is tragic. Not all compromise, but the kind of compromise we're talking about today. Because when we compromise our beliefs, when we compromise who we are integrally, It destroys trust. It tears down the quality of our relationships. It produces cynicism and deep wounds, both in our lives and in the world at large. So why is there so much of that kind of compromise in the world today? I think a lot of it can be traced to what I want to call, just for a moment, pragmatic selfishness. And by pragmatic, I mean an ends-based thinking, as in what is in it for me? How do I get out of this what I want? An ends-based kind of thinking. And then a selfishness that becomes this lens to this is what I want, this is what I want for me, so how do I go about getting it? And so these ideas of, of sacred commitments or living with integrity at great cost, if we live in a selfish society, then what's the point? What's the point of living with integrity? What's the point of keeping our commitments that we have made if life is only about me? I want what I want. I don't care what I do in order to get what I want. I don't care what covenant I break. I don't care what commitment 
I throw away. I don't care what promise I have compromised in order to get what I want. And a lot of this has to do with this. Our individual untethering, our our breaking of our relationship with God. It's so easy to place that on our culture and on a society. But today I want to talk about each of us as individuals. Because yes, we, we live in a culture and in a society where we can see what we would call a moral erosion over the course of the last 70-ish years. But I would argue that that has started in our homes long before that. And that's what we, that is how that seeped into our culture. John Sanderson says it like this. He says, if we probe a bit deeper, talking about this, this culture of compromise, we see that unfaithfulness is very close to disobedience. For a man who disobeys God has cast himself loose from the only support a man can have, and his direction in life will be controlled by this. And this statement is so powerful. Will be controlled by the shifting winds of circumstance and his own whimsical desires. Whatever is next, whatever this world throws at me, that's what I'll allow to be my next influence. That's what I'll allow to be my next guiding light. So when we are untethered, when we break that bond between a sense of obligation to God and as a result of that, a sense of obligation to our neighbor, when we consider the greatest commands, we basically do whatever we want and we don't care about the consequences in between. And when this happens in the church, as it has, the church no longer functions as the conscience for the larger society, which is where we find ourselves today in this country. And our culture ends up being filled with heartache as a result. This is what God said through the prophet Hosea. He said, hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you. There is no faithfulness. And what is lacking in faithfulness has led to no love and no acknowledgement of God in the land. There's only cursing, only lying and murder, only stealing and adultery. They break all bonds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. And we can see this in our society in 2023. We see this, these horrific injustices taking place in the world around us. We can see this with the breakdown of the deepest commitments that humanity makes to one another in our relationships, both in businesses and in homes and the church and in our families. And we cannot let this pragmatic selfishness, this ends-based selfishness, this what's-in-it-for-me selfishness seep into our lives as believers in Jesus Christ, where our convictions to the Lord become less important than compromising to the culture around us. We have to be people of faithfulness. And the fruit of conviction, the fruit of being faithful to the Lord is described in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and how it looks, how it, how it bears itself. What does faithfulness look like? What is keeping this promise that we have made to God? What does that look like? In the Old Testament, it's actually shown as a picture, talking about pillars that hold up homes. It is the foundation of life. It's this idea of strength, stability, and dependability. That's what faithfulness is described as in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's described as firmness or trustworthiness or loyalty. So if we look at the whole semantic piece of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, how would we describe this conviction to faithfulness? And I think it can really be broken down into just one word, trustworthiness. That we can trust God and that we can become people who are trustworthy ourselves. 
Now, here's the challenge with the word like faithfulness is that it gets tossed around in our Christian culture very easily, but it is a very weighty word. God is faithful. Just be faithful. Good and faithful servant. And we hear these phrases stated and we think, yeah, uh uh-huh, moving on. There is so much behind that word that has to imprint itself on our heart. And without it, no amount of truth matters. Dr. Martin Luther King talked about Scripture and, and, and the power of it when it is devoid of Christ. He said, Christianity has no meaning when Christ is not the center of it. The noble principles and moral structure of Christianity remain abstract until they are personified in a person called Jesus. Christ becomes the center of the pivotal point around which everything in the Christian faith revolves. Now, what he was trying to say is this. Faith and faithfulness are not just adherence to theological ideas. It's not just, this is what I do because I am a Christian. These are the the tenets that I follow. These are the paths that I walked. A Sunday morning conviction that we hold. It is a fundamental relationship commitment to a person, that person being Jesus Christ. Faith, biblically, is a covenant with God. And so there is this question that we need to answer for ourselves, and this is where we're going to dive into Scripture this morning. Are we willing to be faithful when it doesn't result in favor for our lives, in benefit to us? Are we willing to be faithful when it's hard? Because here's a statement that I want you to be reminded of that you'll see on the screen behind me, and that is this. Living out Christ's truth in this world won't be easy. It's the first line in your, in your outlines this morning. It will not be easy. Look with me at Mark chapter 13, verse 13. Jesus says this. He says, everyone will hate you because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. In his book, An Attentive Life, Leighton Ford talks about how to pay attention to where God is working. And this is very interesting. It's a, it's a really interesting study that he did because it is so relevant to what the greater church is going through right now in our country specifically. He said he had concerns that some young people would go to these large Christian festivals, these large churches, and they would have their adrenal glands be fired up by the dynamic environment that they found themselves in. Loud music, crazy lights, big, big production, and it was communicated to them that this is how you feel the spirit. And you, we've all been at concerts where we just... We're kind of like, yeah, you know, this is great. In churches, we call it like that summer camp high. You go, to, you go to church camp and you get just jacked up for Jesus. You just, yeah, like all these people that, that love Jesus, love the Lord, and, and they, they love me. And then you leave and you come home. You leave that Christian festival. You leave that concert. And so if we equate that feeling to the Holy Spirit's movement and work in our lives, then he can only exist in those places. What he says in the book is that young people don't know that they have become addicted to the effects of the adrenal gland and have mistaken this biological function for the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. They have mistaken the environment for the person. And so often, if we, weren't, we are not careful, we can end up trusting the benefits of a relationship with God and the blessings instead of God himself. 
And if we only go to God, if we only believe in God for the blessings that we receive as a result of that relationship, then we don't really love God. We just love what He does. But we also face a time as we are now where we will be mocked, ridiculed, and torn down by our beliefs. In some of your classes this morning, you heard the story of Jaylene Hinkle Daniel. And I'm not going to repeat that story because it's a, it's a pretty incredible story. And if you were not in a class where that short sh- story was shared, I encourage you to look her up. She was an aspiring U.S. national team soccer player who took a stance on her beliefs as far as what she was going to promote on the U.S. women's soccer team in regards to the LBGTQ community. She was mocked. She was ridiculed on the national level for her statement of what she believed marriage to be. She lost her place on the national team as a result of it, for the stance she was willing to take. Jaylene Hinkle Daniel, if you weren't there, Google her. Read her story. It's, 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 it's powerful. She stood and faced Mark 13, 13 in, in the face. She was hated because of her commitment to the Lord, to a much greater degree probably than many of us, because of the platform that she held. So what is going to keep us convicted? What is going to keep our faithfulness in God and not just relying on the things that maybe have propped up our faith? This adrenal gland rush, this once a week Sunday morning refilling, what is going to keep us in our faith convicted in our relationship to our creator on Monday, on Tuesday, on Friday night, whenever... Our parents aren't there to bring us to church every week. What's going to keep our connection to God going? It is forcing us to answer a very deep question, and that is this. Where is our functional trust? What I mean by that is not my statement of faith, not my theological beliefs, not my beliefs on the Bible or anything else, but this, the actual trust of my heart. How do we move From spoken belief, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God, to deep trust and faithfulness. One is a beginning, and one is a road that you travel for the rest of your life. First thing we have to do is we have to be prepared for what comes along with that kind of faith. Five points this morning from Sarah Barrett's book that we've been going through, Stand Up, Stand Strong. And the first one is this. As believers, we have to be prepared to stand alone. There will be a conversation that we will face in our life where we are standing alone. Not some online social media argument where keyboard warriors are hiding behind the protection of their screen and the security of a Google search where they can proof text whatever it is they want to prove to you. I mean a face-to-face moment where it feels like we're the only person who believes what we believe. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Peter says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. We've been told that if we live this life, this is what we stand to face. The Bible tells us directly that we will face opposition. So why would we face opposition without preparation? I told My class that I taught this morning, our We Connected class, I don't often come up with fantastic analogies on my own. I usually find them 
and re- refine them. This one's 100% me, so if you don't like it, keep it to yourself. <laughs> but there is probably very little that has resonated with me more than the idea of being a, a couch quarterback. Middle-aged men who think they know, I mean, I, if I just put me out there. Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite, for all you Gen Z people, if a coach had just put me in, we'd have taken state. I am a 42-year-old, almost 43-year-old man. If I were to miraculously find myself in the NFL today, I would officially be the oldest person in the NFL. Now that Tom Brady has supposedly retired again, there are only three men in the NFL over the age of 40, and two of them are kickers. I know you're all shocked by that. And the other is a cowboy, so, all right. (laughs) But... What would possess a 42-year-old man like myself on a Sunday sitting on the couch saying, man, I could do that better than they could? Really? Do you feel like at the, the, the shape that you find, your, whatever round of obtuse shape you find yourself in right now, that if you were to be put in front of six-foot-eight defensive linemen, I give it four plays, and here's what would happen. They have spent their entire life preparing to destroy you. And ladies, if you want to be 42 and jump in the NFL, you get the same level of destruction. Because after four plays, I'll tell you where you would find that person at the ICU, struggling to hang on to life. Because they decided to go up against someone who has prepared, who has refined themselves, who is ready to face you in that moment with all the pieces that they need. Why would we not do that in our spiritual life? These guys that, that think that way are relying on, on, man, on seventh grade football. I was so good in the seventh grade, I could just tear that defensive line up. Do we want to rely on our seventh grade faith when we are tested in these moments of trial? When somebody who is prepared to engage with us comes and has questions, has Real arguments that they bring before us. Why would we back ourselves into a corner because we haven't done the work? We haven't put time into the word. We haven't spent any time applying it. And yet we feel ready. I'm ready, coach. Put me in. Have you been practicing? No. Well, have you, do you know the playbook? <laughs> Definitely not. How are you ready? I was really good in the seventh grade. And I am ready for the NFL. But that's often what we do. We quickly realize in these moments how unmatched we are. We have to be prepared for what we are going to face. And that leads us to the second point this morning, and that is this, that we need to know why we're doing what we're doing. And I'm not even talking about what we're doing in here on Sunday morning in this particular conversation. Why are we following Jesus Christ? Why have we chosen this as our life? This isn't a Sunday morning conversation hour and a half snapshot. This is our entire life. We have committed ourselves to Jesus Christ. Paul addresses this why in his second letter to the Corinthian church in chapter 5, verse 14. And it only takes him five words to address it, and yet we glaze past this. He says, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all, all died. In your classes, you might have also heard of a man named Saeed Abendini. 
a Christian in Iran who was persecuted for his beliefs, and he said it this way. He said, people die and suffer for their Christian faith all over the world, and some people may wonder, but the answer to the why is not actually why. It's actually who. Jesus is my why. He is worth everything that I give. Our why has to be more than a fear of hell. Our why has to be 100% connected to the depth of our relationship with the Lord. And here's what I mean by that. In our infancy of faith, fear oftentimes is what drives a decision. I, I, I don't want to spend an eternity separated from God. I don't want to not know the love of the Lord for the rest of my life. And so fear would maybe push me to say, well, so here's the, the counter to that. Just become a Christian uh, accept Jesus Christ, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit when you put on baptism. But I haven't yet learned the depth of Christ's love at that point. I haven't understood what Jesus has already done for me. Love guides us in our maturity, in our faith, not fear. Jesus, for what he has already done for us, is worth the price. The foundation of our why is Jesus. Our commitment to Christ requires commitment to his way and to his words. We follow and obey these words because of what Paul said in this letter. For Christ's love compels us. It pushes us. It drives us. It, the love of Jesus Christ defines how we make our decisions. And number three this morning, I think, is unfortunately where a lot of American Christians get stuck. It's where we dig ruts and where we have a really hard time digging our way out of the ditch. And that is this. We have to grow. We must grow beyond biblical knowledge into biblical application. God's Word is the number one tool we have in our cultural toolkit. Biblical knowledge equips us to stay strong under pressure. And without a knowledge of Scripture, we have absolutely no baseline. We have no foundation on which to build our lives upon. The Word of God does not bend and change with culture, as Sarah Barrett says, but God's character remains whether humans are on this earth or not. These unchanging truths live beyond the changes and pressures that we face in our culture and on any other culture on the face of this earth. But simply hearing these words, simply memorizing these words, simply writing them on Posters from Hobby Lobby that get mounted in our every room of our house mean nothing if we don't do anything with them. Knowledge alone still leads to destruction. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. These are the words of the Lord. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Some of y'all know a song that goes along with this. The rains came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Having a strong biblical foundation, building our faith on the immovable rock of Jesus Christ is imperative. However, what people often move past so quickly in those verses is the two statements that counter each other. 
And the first one is this. Hear he who hears these words of his and puts them into practice. There's also another. He who hears these words of his and does not put them into practice. No amount of church attendance, scripture memorization, or small group discussion forces us to put them into practice. We have to make that decision 100% for ourselves on how we are going to live our lives outside of the walls and confines of this church. And no one here can make that decision for us, but we do need help. And that's where number four falls this morning. And it's in all caps, so just pretend you're reading it online so someone's screaming at you. Connect to your church. If you have decided to make West Irwin Church of Christ your home church, be a part of what we do. Please. And this is why. Because at some point you're going to need me or someone like me. And at some point I'm going to need you. And if the only time our paths intersect is for an hour and a half on Sunday morning, we have missed the point of connection altogether. As she says in her book, she just uses a very simple phrase. It's tough to go it alone. The support of a Christian family and friends helps us survive pushback. It helps us survive loneliness. It helps us survive discouragement. It helps us survive, period, when our houses burn, when life throws us curveballs that we're not ready for. We're not intended to go through this world alone. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9, 10, and 12 say it this. They say, two are better than one because they have good return for their labor. If either one of them falls down or one overpowered, then the two can defend themselves. But pity anyone who falls and does not have anyone to help them up. Though one may be overpowered, the two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. If we don't have close relationships with fellow believers, no one will even know when we're down. No one will know when we're falling. No one will know when we're struggling, when we're hard-pressed on every side. And just as an aside to that, it is an unfair expectation that we would ever place on our spouse to carry that burden 100%. 100% support me. 100% encourage me. No one individual can give all of that. Only the Lord ourselves can do that. We need Christian community, Christian family. We need to be connected one, one to another. Jesus knew that we would need the church. The church isn't for his benefit, it's for ours. We need others. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one part of you suffers, then every part suffers with it. And if one part is honored, every part is honored with it. Remaining Jesus on, oftentimes can be a very physically Remaining faithful to Jesus, I apologize, can be a physically lonely road. Spiritually, not necessarily, but physically, it can, we can look around and see no one around us. We have wonderful people who can pour into our lives here if we would just let them. And that's where number five, and this is our last, our last one this morning falls, is this, we need to know what we believe and why we believe it. We do great at the knowing what we believe part. If you grew up in church, chances are you can think back to your childhood and remember that one teacher. Oh, man, 
They, they really made an impact on you. They, they poured into you. They loved you. They encouraged you. Their flannel graph studies were right on point. They, uh, they had prepared to give you the word. They imprint those important truths on us from childhood all the way to adulthood. So we do a pretty good job, honestly, of knowing the what. But do we know why we believe? <coughs> Excuse me. Why we believe what we profess. <coughs> I, know, I don't know how, how up-to-date you are on what the current generations are called. Some of us just quit when our generation became. I was like, okay, well, I know mine. Uh, our, our kids, uh, like some of our guys sitting here on the front row and some of our kids back in the back room this morning, they're Generation Alpha. Generation Z would be anyone from the late 90s to 2010. You've got your millennials from 1980, 81-ish, all the way up until the late 90s, and X before that, and going back and going back. But I want to give you a very discouraging, unfortunately, statistic about Alpha. The current prediction, based on previous generational trends and how they have moved forward, unless something changes in the church, in how we equip our kids, in how we equip the, equip the generation moving forward, unless something changes, the prediction is that 86% of generation alpha that is raised in the church will walk away. That's based on the trends of each generation before them and the rate at which they left the church in a culture that we are living in now. It's a terrifying statistic. Is it because we are not equipping our kids to understand how to address? And I, I'm grateful for, for an eldership here that said we need to talk about these things from up here. Not just to our kids, but to understand this is our shared collective world. It isn't just theirs, and we want everyone to have a relationship with Jesus. Everyone, including those who weren't raised in a period of time that we were. And it's a very sobering statistic. And it happens for a variety of reasons, but one of those reasons is that they can't handle the pushback they receive in our culture, the cultural backlash that they receive for believing in God. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 reminds us, as people who can understand this, that we need to always be prepared to answer everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do so with gentleness and with respect. We do pretty good getting to having an answer, which is hope. Hope is our answer. But we oftentimes become so focused on the need to be right that we miss out on the love of Jesus Christ on the way there. We have to be rooted and established in our faith so that we know when our culture is feeding us a lie, what the counter to that lie is, what the actual answer is. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, and this is where we're going to end our time in the Word this morning. So then just as you received... Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. But see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Jesus Christ. 
Hollow and deceptive philosophies can only be proven untrue in our hearts by the Word of God proving it otherwise. Otherwise, we would not know what is deceptive. Otherwise, we would not know what is the converse of truth. And that's why people are so easily swayed by opinions that are presented as fact because they're relying on that seventh grade football training that they had. We haven't spent our lives living in the Word and applying it to our lives and then sharing those lives with those around us, both within the church and outside of the church. A good debater can always convince a weak mind. But even when we share our faith, and this is very key, and it's why I think Paul did not leave this out in any of his letters. He says, we do so with gentleness and respect. Shouting and anger have very rarely won a heart from Satan. Putting someone down for what is probably a very genuine, albeit misguided belief, belittling them, talking down to them, only pushes them further away. So we give an answer, we stand firm where truth stands firm, but we do it with the love of Jesus Christ permeating the entire way. So this is the question for each of us this morning. Will you be faithful to God no matter the cost? Will you compromise? You better compromise in your marriage. But not on the foundational principles that have been presented to us through the Word of God. That's the compromise that we cannot make. Both as a church, but that begins with individuals. That begins with us. That begins in our homes. And then it finds its way through our teachings that we have in the church. And then hopefully, it finds its way out. That we would share that truth, regardless of the response we get, but that we would do it in gentleness, kindness, and respect. We are going to have a culture that continues to push us back, push back, more so a year from now than they will today. And it is incredibly important how we respond and that we respond because apathy is also a response. Doing nothing is a response as well. So let's be a people who respond in truth but permeated with the love of Jesus Christ. If we can encourage you to that, if we can stand beside you and walk with you, uh, or if we can help you begin that life new today in a relationship with Jesus, putting him on in baptism and receiving that gift of the Holy Spirit, if we can do anything for you, won't you come this morning while we stand and while we sing?